Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing, information, and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Clara Jimenez-Delgado. Clara is a Master of Archival Studies and Master of Library and Information Studies student at the University of British Columbia. She is from Spain and holds a BA in History and an MA in Museum Studies. Her interests include personal and non-textual archives and the theory and practice behind interdisciplinary cultural institutions. In the 2019-2020 academic year, along with Julia Alford, Clara was a co-coordinator of the Association of Canadian Archivists Student Chapter at UBC and organized the annual International Symposium and Seminar that happened earlier this year in February. We are so excited to talk to Clara about a project that she worked on um, at the Museum of Anthropology, which was also the focus of her final project in Dr. Jennifer Douglas's Personal Archives class. Clara, is there anything you want to add an introduction that you want listeners to know or anything that I might have missed? First of all, thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, I'm very excited to be able to share my work and my paper with you. And I would just like to clarify that I completed this project as part of a work-learn position at the Museum of Anthropology, where I've been working for a bit over a year now. Just to add on that, on, well, on my, about my last work, while still working at MOA this summer, I've had a graduate research assistant position with Dr. Hannah Turner in a project on community involving, involvement and decolonizing information and museum practices in South African museums. So I was thinking we could start about talking with um, talking about Jennifer's personal archives class to give listeners some context, because by personal archives, uh, we mean the records or archives that individuals, families, and communities create, as opposed to more government or organizational archives. Um, I thought it was also really interesting that this class requires the completion of the MAS, uh, the Master of Archival Studies core courses that students take in their very first semester, um, and also after another mandatory course on archival appraisal. So this class is an elective, and usually students take it at the very end of their degree, and it's a very popular class. Um, and something that I remember Jennifer noting several times, and we talked about this in our discussions as well, is that students often come um, into the program being more interested in personal archives uh, than in government or organizational archives. Um, but the funny thing is that so much of our curricula um, are focused on those government and organizational archives. Um, and in the first class, Jennifer asked us what reasons we had for taking this class. So I was curious, Clara, if you could talk about some of the reasons that you had uh, for taking this class and what you had been hoping to get out of it. This might sound a bit weird, especially if you haven't had a class with Jennifer Douglas before. But one of the reasons I decided to take this class was Jennifer herself. And uh, with my background and personal interests, I felt 
in the, during the core courses, Jennifer brought a different perspective to the theory and practice. And it felt more focused on the personal side and the people behind the records rather than the institutional perspective. And I found that really attractive. And then having been through a bachelor's in history and a master's in museum studies, I also felt the curriculum in general has a strong focus on institutions and government practices. And I've been feeling for some time now that I've been forgetting about the people and lives behind the, those institutions, records, objects and processes. Uh, it's been happening for a long time. And this class had the promise of talking about those people. And that was really exciting. Also, everyone with whom I talked about the class had nothing but good opinions about it, which is also a, a really good indicator. And to be honest, I'm not sure what I was hoping to get from it, but I think I ended up getting more from the class than I had anticipated. And on my and others' emotional and witnessing work as an archivist, talking about that was really enlightening and how the class was structured, encouraging discussion about the readings and topics and opening the floor for, for everyone's opinions and everyone's comments was really refreshing and interesting. Yeah, I think it was really great to have so much space to talk about emotion and affect. Maybe we can talk about the assignment itself to explain uh, what it is we had to do. Uh, so for this class, our big assignment uh, was to focus on a specific font um, or collection um, and examine or analyze it through a certain lens, such as affect and intimacy, uh, the activist, archivist, the personal in the organization, place and space, etc., um, and the collection that you focused on was also a collection that you processed um, in your work at MOA. And it was called the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada Sci Collection. Uh, so I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a background on this collection for uh, folks who haven't read your essay or who just don't know uh, what this collection is. Like, who was the creator? Um, and, like, what is the collection about? The collection was donated to the museum in 2000, late 2019. And it's from a private donor. And it consisted on 50 photographs. 48 of those were lantern slides, glass lantern slides. And two of those were color negatives. And the main focus of the collection, it looked, looking at it from, uh, the first look I had was that the, the lantern slides were the, collection itself and then someone had added the two negatives because they weren't that related in content and and subject uh, to the rest of the collection and they were well they had different stages of conservation and preservation but most of them uh, had a black cloth around them and some numbers and some annotations that were made by the donors or someone along the, their history or the, the their their life and the donors, when they donated the collection, they specified who had created these lights and what was the name of the collection. So they decided the name was the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada's light collection. So it was, yeah, long. 
lot of implications that I don't, I'm not sure they realize at the time. Well, shortly after the connection, the collection was donated, they asked me to process it and I didn't have much information, but I ended up finding two sources online. So the first one was, it was called the Anglican Church of, of Canada Diocese in Rupert's Land. Archives had a fund that was also the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada fund and included two series uh, talking about lantern slides, but there was not much information. The, they only said that uh, they needed processing and they needed more, well, more care. But then I found the Anglican Church of Canada General Synod Archives, and they also had a phone that was also called the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada phone, 1977 to 2011. And as part of that one, they had digitized a lot of images. And I was, with those images they had digitized, I was able to match because there were so many duplicates of really similar images. So I was able to locate the photographs in the collection that I was processing. As, and I found that most of the photographs were uh, taken in four residential schools across Canada. Well, in Manitoba, British Columbia, Ontario and Yukon. And there were a couple of more slides that had um, landscapes that I couldn't identify and a couple of communities that I couldn't identify either because I didn't find them there. So that was it. And so I started looking into slideshows and lantern slides and how the Missionary Society had used these slides. And I, it wasn't easy. <laughs> there, there is not much information about how they use these shows. But uh, what I found is that in the first part of the 20th century, in the first half, they started commissioning photographs about residents or with residential schools to promote their work and to raise funds and as part of their proselytism efforts. And they would hold, uh, host these shows in, well, Sunday um, events or missionary events, things like that. And they normally came with a text. Explain. So the people, the person hosting the show would know what to say or what was what they were supposed to say and what they weren't supposed to say. And so that's mainly the the content of the collection. They normally mm, depict uh, students or staff or families in different activities or the buildings, the inside and outside of the buildings and also the surroundings. So a lot of cemeteries, graveyards and places like that. So it's it's a collection with a lot of sensitive materials and it was digitized after I finished processing it. It was digitized but by other students. And now if you want, you can go into the Moa, Adam in Moa, at Moa, and you can see many of those photos. You've spoken a bit about, you know, what the collection is about and what processing it involved. Why did you choose to focus on this collection for your personal archives class project? I don't know how it all started, but I think it was in one of the classes with Jennifer. Uh, we talked a bit about the personal in the organizational or the personal in the institutional and how we 
when we say that a collection is institutional or organizational, we completely disregard or we stop paying attention to the people that created the records or that are portrayed or, or subject in the records. And I started thinking how this collection in particular, I had processed it as institutional because I was told that the creator was the missionary society, but actually it was not about the society. What appeared in the collection was not was was more about the people in it or or the the communities and the persons in the slides and their stories than the society itself. And when I finished working on it, I well I continued with my slide, <laughs> and then I I remember thinking going back to it and thinking I hadn't done a good enough job processing it because because of that because I had disregard or I had detached myself from those stories and from those peoples and those communities and I had treated it as institutional and so I thought it was a really good example of how something that for some people can be a private or an institution record for other people can feel really personal and I remember reading one of um, Jennifer's papers uh, that was about that, how organizational records can feel really personal for some people. And I, I thought that maybe looking back at the collection with the readings from the class, I could understand what I had felt and I could understand how I could be doing right by the people and the records. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I remember we talked a lot about like doing right by the donors or the subjects. Um, and there's a lot of pressure to like kind of represent someone's life archivally. Um, yeah, maybe we can talk a bit about witnessing and, and affect. Because uh, in your paper, you, you wrote about how, and, and you mentioned just now, like how the lantern slides stayed with you even after you'd finished processing them. Yeah, and you talked about like not like feeling like you hadn't done your job properly, even though uh, you were following like preset archival practices, like on paper, this is what you're supposed to do. But like, there's still like that lingering feeling of unsettled feeling. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about like this emotional pull towards the collection and, and, and this idea of like, you know, not doing your job properly, even though, you know, by all like the standards and practices, like, you know, it should be done going going back to it i keep thinking about how i've been studying history and i've been studying museum studies and archival science and all these disciplines that are in core are about emotions and peoples and 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 their lives and it's about lives but how i've been taught and i learned and i kind of being comfortable taking a step back and seeing it as a spectator and not involving myself and not taking a part, emotional part on it. And I, I, I think, I guess that if I hadn't taken the class with Jennifer this last term and if my emotional life had been more stable <laughs> last term because, well, organizing... Uh, the ACA was uh, took a, a lot of me, so I think if my emotional state and my classes were would have been different, 
had been different, I perhaps I wouldn't gone back to it, or or I wouldn't have started thinking about this. But uh, when I started thinking about it, I realized that the supposed neutrality or the supposed unemotional archivist that we study and we are supposed to become, it's not real, and you don't you don't really know when something is gonna emotionally affect you, or if it's gonna emotionally affect you. But suddenly, you I don't know you. I, I discovered myself rethinking about this and think and going back to it and re-look looking and looking at the descriptions I had done in Adam and thinking oh, they are not good good enough. I could go back and then thinking no, you have to you gotta have to continue. This is not your job and uh, I it's something that we are not prepared for and it's something that we don't talk about in class or we don't talk talk about it as often as we should and it's well yeah it's something that it happens and yeah and and then I I I thought that I realized that the problem here had been that I had been witnessing or what later on reading about it I learned that it was the witnessing of uh, an abuse or witnessing of tools of oppression and propaganda and I hadn't been treating them as such. I had treated them as historical documents. This happened but it didn't happen to me. One of the things that I was wondering about when I was reading your work was that you're from Spain and Mm -hmm. I think you just moved here pretty recently for this master's program. Um, You're not indigenous. I'm I'm also not indigenous. Um, I'm a settler and you know reading this I was thinking about like this is also very complicated work to be coming to as a non-indigenous person like you're saying like maybe not having a lot of prior knowledge about residential schools or um, you know, the genocide of Indigenous peoples in Canada, any of that stuff. So I was curious to hear about that, like what that was like for you while processing the collection um, or afterwards thinking about it or reflecting on it through this project. Like, um, yeah, if there's more you wanted to say about that process, because it sounds like it was a complicated one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I and I would say that it's on top of not being uh, not having learned about in residential schools for a long time and being from Europe and from Spain and all of that. Um I would say that my education or I don't know if it has changed in the last 15 years, but m- my education was very traditional in the sense that we would go to class and we would have a professor giving a lecture and if you had questions ask questions but there is no discussion about it and there were not many professors that would talk about indigenous peoples or well for example we were learning about uh, colonization Spanish colonization of South America and decolonization and I was lucky enough to have a professor who 
talked about pre-colonial uh, civilizations and and peoples, but it it was not that useful. So when I came in, when I arrived in Canada, I was kind of expecting for the program to have more indigenous presence and more indigenous focus. And uh, so, and then when I was going through the registration and all, and I was asked, do you want to be part of the First Nation curriculum concentration? And I was thinking, what is it? <laughs> well, because, and, and then I started learning about the, uh, the FNCC, the First Nation uh, curriculum concentration and all these things. And I, I was kind of disappointed because I was expecting the school and most of the courses to have more of an indigenous perspective and more of an indigenous point of view on on presence. So that was unexpected and that was uh, disappointing. And then I decided, well, I'm here, I'm going to be dealing with information that has been on this, well, from one point or the other, there are records of abuse and well, genocide in the archives or, and the library, and I'm going to be dealing with this. So I, I should learn about this a bit more, and I should become, I don't know, I, I, I should be ready <laughs> to deal with information about this. And it's it makes me, I must say, it makes me really insecure and nervous, and I think it's one of the reasons that I'm so nervous today, because I'm talking about this. It's re- it makes me doubt myself a lot because I don't I haven't been reading or studying from this perspective for a long time and I fear that my background and and my well my stories and everything that's I've been learning for so t- long is gonna jump in and say no that's that's not necessary you shouldn't be doing this it's it's okay there I, I yeah. I don't know. So uh, at the museum, I ask a lot about how to approach different materials, and I I I read a lot about the policies and different well different approaches they have to different materials. Um, but yeah, it's not easy, and it and I also find that it's not something that has been dealt with so much in the literature because we end up reading a lot about from the same same perspective and from the same um, scholars and from the same professionals yeah it's it's challenging it's difficult and yeah (laughs) i imagine you can relate to some part of this especially in such a short amount of time too like that's a lot of stuff to learn and it's it's a lot of responsibility like I I think on one hand we're learning the tradition and just like the profession of uh, of archives but then on the other hand there's also a lot of other history that I feel like for me personally like I have a responsibility if I wanted to like like I, I feel like every well at least for me I feel like it is a personal responsibility to 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 at least like have that level of respect um and and it seems like sometimes 
a lot of the times um, what we're kind of taught in archival literature doesn't make it easy. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, it doesn't make it easy, but quite the opposite. And from a privileged position, like the one that I have and the one that I had had my whole life, following practices that don't challenge those privileges is effortless, whereas change is uncomfortable and distressing. In your paper, uh, you use the Lantern Side Collection um, as an example of how traditional archival practices can actually lead to a sterile practice. Um, and that can be dangerous because of misrepresentation and stereotyping. Can you talk about looking at the collection from a different lens to uh, redefine creatorship and provenance, specifically from an archival and emotional justice perspective? Um, and I thought emotional justice was a really interesting idea or value uh, to have when working with records. I hadn't really, I don't think I've ever really considered that before. Yeah, uh, it was one of those readings that I kept going back. It was the Sifors, Marika Sifors reading. I kept going back to that reading. It's There is so much there. And <laughs> as I said, when I processed the collection for the first, well, for the first time and the only time, I didn't think about the subjects or the, I hate the word subjects, sorry, <laughs> the people in the records and on the records and behind the camera um, or in front of the camera. I didn't think about them. And by following archival practice, traditional archival practices, it was really easy to process because it was choose the creator choose provenance and so the donors were part of provenance uh, the creator was who commissioned the the lantern slides and then the subjects they are there but they didn't take a really great part on making the collection and when i started rethinking it uh, i was looking at different readings and i was looking at how uh, creatorship can be seen as an um, a continuous process and how everyone or every person who takes a part or who comes into contact with a collection can be part of the creation of the provenance. And how, well, of course, the Missionary Society had a great deal of work and the donors did a lot of the collection because they kind of helped defining it and they don't decided to donate it to the museum but I was also part of that creation because I was creating descriptions and I was uh, deciding what to say and what not to say but also the people on the photographs were part of that creation because they were there and it's their stories so by creating that or by um Applying that approach of continuous creatorship, I think it that doesn't really it's not easy to conform in traditional archival practices. Um the the collections or the records or the archives in any case can become more of uh more true to the real meaning, to the real 
well, to themselves, right? About the, the sterile practice, I think, and I think this goes back to the way we're taught and, I, and the way the, that information is processed and acquired. There is so much that we try to make it sterile or we try to make it neutral. Because if we were to involve ourselves so much with every collection, it would be impossible to to do anything, right? So it's kind of a, I don't know, like a shield that we put ourselves behind because we, we don't allow ourselves to feel for every single thing, which can be really useful, but it can be also heartbreaking and it can be really bad it can be it can end up perpetrating the status quo and repeating the same structures and same domination rules and the same systems that have been happening so if we don't think about it and if we continue stereotyping and with that sterile practice we can end up well not changing anything, even if we talk about changing everything in every class, in every colloquium, in every everywhere. If we don't do things differently in practice, it doesn't matter. No, it, it's interesting, like how we kind of use like this idea of neutrality as a shield, then because then it kind of absolves us of any like responsibility, right? And isn't that kind of also problematic. <laughs> yes, because it, it's basically you're not responsible for anything that, that you do and you're saying that the people who created the records or the people who stole those the objects or the people who wrote that information in that way, they are responsible. You are not. You're just there <laughs> and impartial and impartiality is <laughs> there is nothing more partial than impartiality mm-hmm. yeah um then like i thought like the the continuous creatorship was really interesting um do you want to talk a bit about more of that like more about that and like um kind of like walking us through some of the options that you had for assigning um a creator to the collection because I, I know in your paper you mentioned um, the Missionary Society mm-hmm. um, of the Church of England in Canada, um, and then you also mentioned the donors, um, and then yourself as archivist and activator, and then the communities and peoples represented in the slides. I'm not sure if everyone knows what activator means. I think it's reference. It's um, I think it comes from one of the articles. I think it might be the Michelle Caswell one. We can link all of these articles in the transcript. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was casual and also Jennifer Douglas talks about it at some point. I had that those four options. The society, the missionary society that create, that commissioned the slides and they didn't take the pictures per se. They commissioned someone to take the pictures and go over different residential schools and take the pictures. Then I was saying uh, also the, the donors because they well, they kept, they got the collection at some point. They didn't document how they got the collection, or at least they didn't give us or give the museum the, the information about how they got it. 
but they provided us with a small list with some titles or some um, descriptions of the slides, which were, well, it's it's kind of creating already part of the narration of the slides or part of what's gonna how they are gonna be determined later on um, and defining that narrative and yeah myself as activator as I as I said I didn't have to make any decisions on what to keep what to destroy any appraisal decisions <laughs> but I, I I described the collection and it was me who flagged culturally sensitive slides so we wouldn't put them on the website. Then I had to run all these by my supervisor. But yeah, I started doing that. And and I think that by choosing how to document myself, to document the slides. So I think that by getting my information from the general Synod archives, I'm also determining the narrative. Because they they decided to digitize those images and upload them to the web into their website, which I'm not I I don't know how much I agree with that, <laughs> but it's well it's according to the law and archival standards is their collection and they can do whatever they want with that so it's kind of their decision. So, but for me using them as a source, it's already creating a narrative. And I'm already using the institution that created that system of abuse to document the records of abuse. That it was partly because I couldn't find much and I, I didn't I didn't know much about residential schools, the, the buildings of the residential schools, so identifying them was very difficult without going back to the general side or not. And then uh, the communities. And I was reading an article for the uh, for my assignment. I was reading an article by Melanie Delva that talks about how the records of Christian societies uh, normally give the creation to the missionaries or the society itself. And then the community is disregarded and the community can participate voluntarily or not. But that's not that important when creating the records or when archiving the records and that's also interesting. I was thinking about how those communities and those peoples were creating the slides because it's essentially it's their stories and their lives were on, on those images and they, even if they gave permission to be on those photographs, I don't think they gave permission to be on an archives and be seen by everyone on the web on, on website or, or or everyone who goes into the museum. So it's kind of a blurry line there. And I was thinking, well, if we recognize the communities as part of the creation, then ethics of access can be redefined as well. And the communities themselves can be can have a word on how these records are processed and how these records are accessed and who can access them. So, and that's something that uh, it's very 
important at uh, the Library and Archives at MOA. And there are lots of collections that are only accessible with permission from the community. In this case, uh, it wasn't that simple. I think it was because it, well, they are all records and they, it's not as easy to identify who took part on them. But, uh, yeah. And considering that that community or those people didn't have much decision on what they were taking part on, perhaps we could give them back that decision now. I like how much you're thinking, like when you're describing that, you're talking about how, like the future of those records, like what's what's next for them. Because I think sometimes arrangement and description can feel like this thing where you're looking, like you're saying, like you're doing all this research about where they came from, the past of them, but being really thoughtful about what happens next for them, not just like, how are people going to find them or something like, yeah, I don't know. I thought that, that's very interesting. Yeah. Cause you, you wrote that, like that reinterpretation and also maybe like that redescription and like returning and looking at what happens um, to this moving forward. Um, it helps us understand records as personal, even though, um, even if like the record keeping system and the, the will of the original creator was, was not as such because, you know, circumstances change. Kind of looking at it from, like, looking at creatorship from a community point of view, because communities, um, like, shift, right? Like, it's, it's really hard to kind of define, um, a community sometimes, especially over time. So if we look at creatorship, like, as a community, how, because the, the collection, uh, because it's called like the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada, it's hard to know from that description what this collection is really about. It, it almost feels like it's kind of redirecting the focus, right? Like you have to really, like if you're looking for, it doesn't really tell you what the collection is about, right? Like it kind of points to more of the propaganda that you were mentioning. And that you know, to me doesn't read, that's not neutral at all. Like that's definitely putting a certain type of lens on the collection then. So if, if we renamed it, like, does that do anything to creatorship? And yeah, then maybe like, do we have a problem with the fact that we name our collections after who created it? So I don't think that renaming the collection affects creatorship or provenance if we make sure to leave a note indicating that change and that's why notes exist and that's why standards like the Canadian rules of archival description seems to like them so much and here my inner historian would say that whenever you read a history chapter that is rotten with outdated terminology or biased statements, there is no issue in correcting that as long as you make sure to leave a note saying in such time and such historian wrote this in this way to reflect how things were written. And that's why uh, we keep documented history and that's why we use tools for accountability. And when talking about how to name the collections, I guess this is a bit, it's a trickier situation because on, one, on the one side, 
we would want to represent the creator in its full. For example, in the case of records of abuse, you don't want to obscure who the abuser was. But on the other, we also would want to make sure that the persons and lives in the records are represented and that you are doing right by them. So it's not an easy answer. And the problem, as I see it, is that we are operating with a, within an archival system that is biased to see people as subjects of study. And that's why I believe it, it's good to adapt the practice, challenging a system that doesn't consider all creators as equal. And about reinterpreting creatorship from a community point of view and how that could help us overcome some of these issues, as I was mentioning earlier, like, for example, by understanding these communities are cre as creators, we could start redefining all other aspects of description and processing and access. And considering the communities as part of the creation would mean, well, first of all, recognize them as people, not only subjects. And secondly, give them a voice over matters of description and access and acknowledge the system of abuse in which these records were created. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so in closing, what is something that you would like folks such as students, supervisors or instructors um, to take away from your experience and analysis of this collection? Because I think your project is really interesting because like, it's a really honest reflection of, of your work and we don't often get to reflect. Um, on stuff like that, especially students, because it is like precarious, temporary work. Yeah, but then we keep hearing that we should hear more about from students, which is <laughs> always, <laughs> yeah. Um, so every time I think about these questions, I think of a different answer. <laughs> um, to be, uh, as of today, I would say that uh, for me, what was most important about this project and the experience was understanding that even if I'm working with records or books or belongings or whatever, I'm dealing with people's stories and lives. And I've seen this, I've, I've said this before, how I've been detaching myself my whole life from what I was studying. So... I, I guess this year I've learned how to acknowledge and respect that. And as a result, I think we should consider the importance of going back to our previous work and reassess what we've done and what we're doing now and the consequences of our decisions. And I say this knowing the difficulty of going back uh, because of backlog or because there is no time or just because it's it's not easy to see that we've been doing something. Um, but yeah, especially now going back might be might have a, an extra layer of difficulty not being able to go back literally to the records. And I would say to finish that, uh, well, at least from what what I've learned from all of these is that we, the archivists, are people with our own 
stories and feelings and ideas. And there is no such thing as a neutral or impartial or aseptic practice. And the choices we make when representing others matter. And the choices we make when setting access restrictions matter. And realizing and owning that we and when we fucked up also matters. And of course, it's not easy to continuously question oneself, but it's also essential because that's how we notice the mistakes we've made and that's how we learn and how we grow. Yeah, thank you. Um, Cara, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. Um, If folks want to reach you online, where can they find you? Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It was great. And yeah, thank you for letting me share my paper and my work. Uh, I'm not very active online. (laughs) I'm trying to get myself away from places like Twitter. Uh, But I'm on Twitter uh, at Clara Archiving. We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That is organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com. Bye-bye.